From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn why doctors and nurses are leaving Ascension Columbia St. Mary's Hospital in Milwaukee and why the hospital is facing controversy. Then, a UWM professor shares the tool she helped to create that trains physicians on how to better break difficult news to patients. I've not really run into many physicians or medical students who have gone through a training that says, well, how do you feel about that? How would you feel if someone walked in a room and just said, you have a diagnosis of ALS? Plus, we'll speak with the president and CEO of Indig Public Media, who will receive an honorary doctorate from Marquette for her work in journalism and for Native Americans. It was often that I was the only Native American in my newsroom, and so it just spoke to the fact that Things needed to change. All that's coming up on Like Effect, but first, here's today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Ascension Columbia St. Mary's Hospital on the east side of Milwaukee has been facing concerns from physicians and patients. Staffing shortages at the hospital have been connected to Ascension's attempts to save money, while some patients have reportedly been left without proper medical attention or have been sent to other facilities. Nurses and doctors have been leaving the hospital due to these conditions, which has led to staff working more hours without the necessary support or compensation. Many of these issues first came to light through the reporting of journalist Ellie Fishman, who investigated the hospital for Milwaukee Magazine. Her piece was published in this month's Milwaukee Magazine, and she joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about her reporting. I actually started reporting this story at my mailbox because I had received care at that hospital at Columbia St. Mary's. And I started getting letter after letter announcing doctor resignations. And the first one, when the first one came in the spring, I thought nothing of it. And then another one came, and then another one came, and then more came. And I thought, this is odd. I'm not used to getting this many resignations in a row. And as a journalist, it just piqued my curiosity. And I started making phone calls and talking to doctors and nurses and hospital staff, many of whom are anonymous in the story because they still work there or they fear retribution. But what they reported were really alarming conditions. And for me, actually, what I realized was some of the strange moments in my care aligned with systemic issues in the hospital. When they were happening to me, I didn't quite understand that that's what was going on, labs getting lost, things like that, long waits. But then as I reported it and I talked to more and more hospital staff, I realized this was happening on a really big scale inside the hospital. And it was happening so much that many hospital employees felt like it was no longer a safe place to take care of patients. The number of resignations really speaks to the many concerns that seem to have come from doctors, nurses, and then, of course, patients. But this isn't actually something that started with the pandemic because that was my initial thought. You know, the pandemic really exacerbated resources. So many hospitals are struggling. This is something that predates the pandemic. Uh, It seems like it started happening in about 2017. What, What are the kinds of changes that started happening around that time? 
The New York Times did a really good investigation into Ascension's finances, and it's part of their series this year where they're looking at nonprofit health networks across the country because so many of them, especially the biggest ones like Ascension, which is a multi-billion dollar nonprofit, are seemingly no longer aligned with their mission of you know, receiving tax benefits in order to take care of those who can't afford care, those who need it most. And Ascension is no exception, according to this New York Times report. While they're paying their executives and upper management millions of dollars a year, one in particular is paid, I believe, $11 million annually to take care of Ascension's Wall Street portfolio. They are cutting costs on the hospital level, on the care level, in order to keep slim margins and remain profitable. So that is not something that started happening in the pandemic. That's actually something that, as you said, predates COVID. And that really hobbled the hospital when the pandemic hit because they were already running with such slim staff At Ascension Columbia St. Mary's specifically, we see kinds of waves of people leaving. One of the things your article talks about is the wave of nurses who left after the vaccine mandate, but then the wave of nurses who left because they weren't being compensated for the amount of extra work they were now having to do with all of these people missing. How is this mass exodus of people impacting the care at this hospital? Well, it can't be good. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I discovered in this reporting is that the more people left, the harder it was on those who remained. And while this is happening at a lot of hospitals and a lot of hospitals have turned to travel nurses or temporary contract nurses, it's a stopgap. It's not a long-term solution. Someone in the story said it's like putting a Band-Aid on top of the Titanic as it's about to hit the iceberg, to give you a visual. (laughs) (laughs) So you have nurses who are exhausted. They're working 36 hours straight. They're stressed out. A lot of them are walking away with their own PTSD from what they're seeing and the struggle it is to kind of just stay afloat in this job through the pandemic and with such short staffing. So that's going to have an impact on patients and patient care. And nurses at Columbia St. Mary's have been raising the alarm for a long time and have felt like it's fallen on deaf ears. I mean, your story in Milwaukee Magazine, it starts with a description of a specific situation a doctor at the hospital who had huge delays to unnecessary surgery and who ultimately decided not to have the surgery done at the hospital, it it really speaks to the lack of faith that so many physicians now have in this facility. Can you describe what that situation was like, why he ultimately decided this is unsafe? Yeah, so Dr. Stoll, who's a spinal orthopedic surgeon shared his experience working at Columbia St. Mary's with me. And he's someone who's been working in Milwaukee and in the community for decades and says in the article he's worked out of 40-plus operating rooms around the globe. And the operating room at Columbia St. Mary's 
is the worst he's ever seen. So that's a serious indictment of the situation. And for him, it was a reflection of all of these issues, staffing shortages, new staff who were coming in who weren't properly trained, so not a lot of institutional knowledge or just general training necessary to have a safe and well-equipped operating room. And also long wait times for serious surgeries where every minute that passes, the risks are elevated, the risks for the patient. And he reached a tipping point and just decided it's actually safer to delay my patient's surgeries than perform them at Columbia St. Mary's. And so he put in his notice and he applied for privileges at another hospital. One of the departments where we're seeing this uh, play out, not just at uh, Ascension Columbia St. Mary's Hospital, but across the Ascension hospitals here in Milwaukee, uh, it's in the obstetrics department. Specifically, it's care for pregnant women and newborns. Uh, It's pretty startling. What has happened with how they care for, for pregnant people and newborns? Right. So just before my story came out, there was an announcement from Ascension that they were closing their labor and delivery wing at their St. Francis Hospital, which is a hospital that serves the Southside community. And their reasoning was that they just couldn't properly staff it. And the truth is they hadn't been properly staffing it. I heard that women in labor would show up and the lights would just be off and they would have nowhere to go. That's a horrifying situation to be in. And some of those women had really severe symptoms or really severe situations like preeclampsia, which can lead to seizure or stroke if you're not cared for immediately. So there were problems in how that wing was run for a while But I don't think anyone wanted the solution to be closing it because now where are those women going to go? Who's going to serve that community? And there's been a lot of outcry about that. There have been protests at City Hall. There have been protests at the head of Ascension Wisconsin's home. There's been a lot of coverage around that. And then at Columbia St. Mary's, the OBGYN group started at the beginning of 2022 with 11 doctors. And by this past fall, it dropped down to four, two or three of whom were part-time. So something was going wrong. And what I came to understand is that it just felt really impossible to keep patients safe. And that goes back to this nursing shortage on a regular OB floor. The appropriate ratio is one nurse for every patient. And that wasn't happening. And not only was that not happening, the numbers got so out of whack that doctors were told to implement what was called a diversion and redirection plan, which meant that when a woman in labor called the hospital this past summer, they were told to go somewhere else because the hospital could not take them. And that's a direct result of these staffing shortages. So you can imagine how that would feel to a doctor who had been taking care of their patient for nine months, once a month, once a week, if not more. And it gets to this point where it's go time and you have to tell them you can't take care of them. You have to send them somewhere else. That's not 
how the job is supposed to go. That's not how care is supposed to look. If you're just tuning in, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers, and I'm speaking with journalist Ellie Fishman about what's happening at Ascension Columbia St. Mary's Hospital. Now, we've talked about some of the impact of these unsafe working conditions, or at least what doctors and nurses, physicians have felt is maybe unsafe. But there's been a lot of stuff that has happened as a result of this, including the hospital almost losing its accreditation, it seems. We've seen the medical college pull out their uh, residents from the hospital. How are these working conditions impacting the hospital overall? What I was looking at in my story were the individual experiences of nurses and doctors, surgeons, hospital staff who shared how chaotic and even unsafe the hospital felt. As an institution, I also wanted to understand basically what you're asking, how this looked on a bigger scale. So I looked at records from the Wisconsin Hospital Association and the Department of Health and Human Services, which showed that what I was hearing from my own sources were not isolated incidences. They were happening across the hospital. And in August, the hospital was temporarily denied its accreditation by JACO, which is an organization that accredits hospitals, meaning, among other things, it means Medicaid will cover patients who get care at the hospital. Columbia St. Mary's has since been reaccredited, but that was a red flag to me. And then I found that there were several citations from the state that also were alarming. They pointed to issues of patient safety and sanitation, too. Patients who waited on a bedpan for far too long. Patients who cried out in horrible pain and couldn't reach anyone for more than 10 minutes. Pretty horrifying stuff. So that showed me that this is a hospital-wide issue. And since the story has come out... The hospital, Columbia St. Mary's, announced that they would delay all elective surgeries through the end of February, which is a big deal because that's how hospitals make their money. And also, other places are launching their own investigations, like the Journal Sentinel just ran a big story on Sunday about issues inside the hospital. So their issues are not going away. And I think what my report, which came out in late December, has done is kind of open the door for people to start asking questions and start investigating what else is going on. Well, we shall see what the future holds for this hospital and for our community. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you. Ellie Fishman is a reporter whose piece on Ascension in Columbia St. Mary's Hospital was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. Fishman spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Having to deliver life-changing news is a difficult task, especially in the medical setting, such as letting a patient know that they have an incurable disease. 
UW-Milwaukee professor of social work Melinda Cavanaugh used to work as a medical social worker in neurology units, and she saw firsthand how unprepared many physicians are to deliver a devastating diagnosis. In order to better prepare doctors and ultimately help patients in how they can face the challenges to come, Cavanaugh got involved in developing a training tool for health professionals for how to break the news. This specific training tool is primarily developed for announcing a diagnosis like ALS, but it has the potential to be applied in many other areas of health. Cavanaugh joins me to share more and begins by explaining how her clinical background informed this training tool. Being a medical social worker, you're called to do a lot of different things. You do home visits, you do nursing home visits, but you're very often in the clinic or in the hospital setting when someone is in to receive a diagnosis, whether that person's prepared for it, they know it's coming, or it was something that um, kind of came out of the blue. And whether you're actually in the room with the physician or down the hall with the physician, I can't count the number of times that I was called into the room because the patient really struggled with that diagnosis or the caregiver had so many questions or there was a huge emotional response as to be expected. And uh, more often than not, the physicians um, really needed that support. They needed someone to come in there and help guide that patient and that caregiver. And so it would either happen that I would be asked to come to the room in advance because they had a feeling that this is what was going to happen, or I would see them kind of stick their head down the hall and, and look for me in a slightly desperate manner, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd go into the room then and be a part of that process. I think people often share just really bad experiences, sometimes horror stories of medical error, medical experiences, and your work today is about helping healthcare providers break news about incurable illnesses. And I'm thinking all the time about hearing people's experiences, like, where is this disconnect? You know, obviously, I've, yeah. I've not gone to med school. I don't know what that experience is like to be a doctor. But I would assume that maybe interpersonal patient communication is a course or something that they take to maybe learn some basic skills about having to be in these situations, because mm -hmm. it is the reality of a doctor to give both good and bad news. So mm -hmm. what is the reality about what doctors are really prepped for? Well, I'm not a physician and I didn't go to medical school, so I can't have, you know, a, a real firsthand perspective. But I'll tell you, over the years, I've worked with a lot of medical students and residents and physicians. And what, what has always struck me is that what seems to be part of their training is, you know, this, this level of knowledge and this expectation of knowledge and this expectation that you're going to translate that knowledge and give somebody some information, some diagnosis, whatever it is. Um, and and, and that, that doesn't necessarily have to be kind of a long and drawn out thing. You don't have to necessarily be super emotional about it, but that you're kind of high up on the food chain. And so you're the deliverer. And um, I've, I've not really run into many physicians or medical students who have gone through a training that says, well, how do you feel about that? What is your experience with a diagnosis? How would you feel if someone walked in a room and just said, you have have a diagnosis of ALS. So it, it doesn't seem to me to be very prevalent. And in our work in this project and talking with other colleagues and physicians, it has resonated tremendously because people don't have that kind of training. And what they are trained to do is, is do this diagnosis and then maybe bring in others to help out. Let's talk a bit more about the physician side of things. So what are we not thinking about as patients right away when it comes to how doctors operate? I imagine they deal with a lot of 
things day to day, mm-hmm. half mm-hmm. hour to half hour, minute to minute, depending on the yeah. patient encounter that they have. So what we may see as cold or robotic, maybe mm-hmm. it's a mode of self-preservation. What are, Absolutely. You know? And I think about this a lot in terms of the physicians that I spent many years with in neurology. You know, these were some extraordinary physicians who on a daily basis were telling people, you know, in effect, you have something that is incurable and at some point you will die with. And I reflect back on that a lot because that that has to really wear on you as a person. And if you don't have that training to really step back and say, how do I feel about this? What do I do? Then you can build up some, you know, type of self-preservation barriers, if you will. You know, you might come across as being robotic or insensitive because if you are open and emotional, and engaged with every single person that you come in contact with, that's got to really wear on you. So I do think that there is a lot of um, thoughtfulness we want to give to the physicians and say, that's hard. That's really hard. So what can we do to help with that so that you don't have to be so um, protective and you don't come off as robotic, and yet you are able to be kind of engaged in a different way with these patients and caregivers. Yeah. So speaking of what can we do to help you, so you're part of a team that developed a training tool to help practitioners deal with these situations and to better support patients. So can you share what this work is and what went into it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm so honored and I'm so excited to be a part of this. And I'm grateful that you asked all about kind of the, the, the clinical work in advance. So, you know, a lot of times as a professor, you do projects and people say, well, where did you come up with that? And and I, I'm very proud to be able to say it's absolutely grounded in my clinical practice. Um, so I work with a couple of amazing physicians, um, Dr. Angela Gange and Dr. Colleen O'Connell, both of whom practice in Canada and um, have been doing work in the ALS community for many, many, many years. And I was asked to be a part of this project. Again, so much conversation around how do we help these physicians. And it was really um, grounded in a lot of work that um, Dr. Buckman has done over many years looking at how do we break news? How do we break bad news just in general? Why are, why are physicians frankly so bad at it? And what can we do? And what we did is we got together through many, many meetings and brainstormed and said, what would it look like if we did a program and we targeted the ALS community knowing that it could be adapted well beyond ALS and what protocol can we use? What kind of um, constructs within a protocol do we need to target? So do we need to think about what do physicians and inclusive of allied health professionals, what do they need to know in advance? What kind of advanced preparation? What kind of knowledge? What kind of um, setting? When and how do you give a diagnosis? Do you give it in the hallway where someone's just kind of stressed out? Do you have a comfortable setting? What can you do to prepare? What do you need to know as an individual? And so we we went through that process and, and developed with the help and the amazing support of um, the International Alliance of ALS and Motor Neuron Disease Associations and the executive director, Kathy Cummings, um, and with the financial support of MT Pharma that said, hey, we'll, we'll financially back this. You, you guys as professionals figure this out. So you mentioned a lot of steps and suggestions, some things as basic as like, think about your setting, where you're going to be, uh-huh. make sure uh-huh. you're sitting near your patient, make uh-huh. eye contact, some some things that are, are basic and things that you can definitely implement right away. But what other steps are you implementing through this program 
Um, I know a lot of it has to do with confronting maybe a physician's own bias and mm-hmm. having some introspection about what they are thinking or going through before they encounter a patient and then walk them through that. Absolutely. And it's it's something we, we, we term know thyself, right? So before you walk into that room, before you even maybe start the day, knowing that your day is going to be engaged with, you know, if you're a physician, it's engaged with diagnosis, or if you're an occupational therapist, or you're a physical therapist, you're going to be doing home visits, right? This is really something we want to be inclusive across healthcare and allied health professionals. But when you think about know thyself, it's just taking a minute and saying, wow, how do I feel about end of life? How do I feel about death and dying? Am I, am I afraid of it? Am I comfortable with it? Do I feel like people should make certain choices or shouldn't make certain choices? And it's really about that, you know, in, in, in social work as a profession, we always say, check your bias at the door. Well, it's incredibly hard to do. It's, it's, it's a beautiful theoretical thought, right? Uh, but in practice, it's tough unless you give yourself that space to really teach yourself how to do that. And that's this idea of know thyself. Um, And then we also embed in the training a mindfulness exercise, which doesn't take very long, five to seven minutes at the most. You can break it out and do it in different ways. But that's where you sit and you say, okay, I'm uncomfortable with this. So you think about it and you think, well, what is that thought behind it? Is there an emotion behind it? Is there fear is there anger? Is there concern? What is that emotion? You, you, you sit with it, you identify it, you feel it, you name it. And that way you're able to say, okay, I'm going to work through that, you know, and, and, and it might be that something happened in your childhood or your adult life, or it might just be that you're just uncomfortable with this and you just need to figure that out, right? Um, and so it, it, it's a really critical piece of this training that helps all of the professionals understand where they're coming from and, and how that might influence how they do or don't give a good diagnosis or do or don't give a good follow-up. You know, as a therapist, as a social worker coming in afterward, you don't know what's just happened, so you have to be prepared. One thing that really stood out to me in your training is the concept of before you tell, ask. You mentioned yes. doctors are all about <laughs> being rewarded for knowing so much knowledge and uh-huh. giving as much knowledge mm-hmm. as possible. And maybe they assume, here's your diagnosis. I'm going to give you all the knowledge that I have about it yeah. versus letting a patient dictate what kind of pace they want to set. I think, I mean, that's something that's like, yeah, that seems simple, but it's probably not done, right? No. No. I mean, because, again, we, you know, we have a lot of assumptions about kind of the physician in the, the pecking order, if you will. And, and it is so critical, particularly in, in this era of everything's online. Everything's on the Internet. You, you don't know what kind of assumed knowledge or preconceived notions that this person and their family members or their caregivers are coming in with. And so you also don't know their own level of fear and concern and anxiety. So taking a second before you just say, this is what we're doing or this is what's happening, you know, tell me what you know about this. Tell me what your thoughts and feelings are about this because then we can alter how we then present either the initial diagnosis or you're an occupational therapist going into someone's home unsure of the fact that two days before they just received a terrible diagnosis. So you're there to do a home assessment. Ask them where they're at. 
What do they know? What's been happening? So that you're not only understanding where you need to move from, but you're privileging that person, their information, and their perspective. And that's really critical in this whole process. So this training tool, is it more of a resource physicians can seek out and guide themselves through? Or are you helping to lead group seminars or things like that? What is the the rollout for this? Yeah, it's a great question. So both, actually. Um, it's brand new. Um, we presented at the international meeting of the ALS and MND organizations, and we had a huge response, just massive response. We're in the process of presenting it at different meetings and conferences around the world. Um, But it's something where it's almost like a package. You know, it's about a 90-minute program to where you or your organization, your clinic, your healthcare setting can take it and you all can watch it as, as a group, as an individual. There are embedded videos that walk through some of these, you know, bigger, more kind of intense um, ideas like the mindfulness exercise. I spend time. I walk you through it. We talk about how to manage emotions because that's another one where it's really hard when someone in the room just starts absolutely emoting, you know, whether it's crying or screaming. And sometimes we just don't know what to do about that, right? We just we just don't know what to do. And so you can take this 90-minute program and present it to your group, your colleagues, your community, or we can come in and deliver the program and the training to you. So it's flexible. We want as many people to do it as possible. Melinda Cavanaugh is a professor of social work at UW-Milwaukee. She helped to develop a new training tool called How to Break the News for Healthcare Practitioners. You can find out more information about the program at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Later in the show, we'll learn about a Milwaukee woman who was also among a small number of black women who played and won local and national bowling championships. But first, we'll speak with Karen Lincoln Michelle about what it means to lead teams of journalists with her Native American values. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. This week marks Marquette University's annual Mission Week. As a part of this event, there will be a special ceremony and keynote address by Karen Lincoln Michelle, an alumna of the Marquette Graduate School in Journalism. Michelle is from Toma and a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation. Currently, she's the president and CEO of Indig Public Media and the president of Indian Country Today a multimedia publisher of news, information, and imagery relevant to the indigenous people of the Americas. Michelle's career also includes vast experience as a journalist, an editor, and publisher. She'll be in Milwaukee tomorrow to accept an honorary doctorate from Marquette for her work in journalism and for Native Americans nationwide. Ahead of that, she joins me. Karen, welcome to Lake Effect. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So was there a key experience or memory for you that either influenced your path into journalism individually or that clearly showed the need for more Native American journalists in the media landscape in your role today? 
Yes, there was. Uh, my background is in graphic arts. And so my first job out of college um, from the University of Wisconsin Stout was on the Winnebago Indian Reservation in Nebraska. And I ran a student print shop, but also taught graphic arts courses. And then in doing so, we had a student print shop. And one of the assignments we had was for my students to know what was going on in the community with the tribe. And at the time, the tribe was doing some really innovative things. They were talking about a 20-year plan for sustainability. And uh, But when I'd go out into the community and talk to people, they really didn't know what was happening with the tribal government. And so one of the things that I was thinking is, wouldn't it be great if they had you know, a daily newspaper or a radio station, perhaps, that the tribal government could get the word out that way? Uh, there was a lot of you know, misinformation. And so as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, it'd be great if someone would do that. And then over time, it became more like, well, you know, maybe this is something that I could do. And so that's when I decided that I would go back to school and major in journalism. And so I went from the Nebraska uh, reservation where I was to Arizona State University. And that um, took place before I transferred to Marquette where I eventually got my journalism degree. Can you share some of the experiences you had at Marquette and how that helped to shape your goal? Your end game was like, I need to help get information out to native communities. Let's see how I get here. What did you learn through that process? Yeah, it was really a study in journalism theory and um, just the importance of journalism in general. So where I started out was I wanted to be more grassroots and have an audience of, you know, native people. But being at Marquette really expanded my mind and my thinking into something broader that there really was a lack of diversity in um, you know, mainstream journalism and that maybe in order to help my own people, I needed to find out uh, how the system worked and maybe even try to do some things to help change the system from within. You've certainly done that and continue to do it. You're the president of Indian Country Today and the CEO of IndieJ Public Media. So what does the role of being an executive in journalism mean to you, particularly with your background in being a journalist? You were also an editor, a publisher, and many more, you know, legacy media type outlets. So how did going from the ground up and now being an executive, how does that inform what you do? Yeah, I would say that I didn't aspire to go up the ladder in that way. It just seemed like every step along the way sort of opened up the next opportunity But what I saw was that real change happens at the top. And so in my efforts to help change things, I was involved with the Native American Journalists Association and then a group that was called Unity Journalists of Color. And part of their mission for for NAJA and for Unity was to try to improve uh, coverage of communities of color. Not only that, but make sure that the staffing uh, represented you know, the diversity of the nation you know, at all levels of the organization. And so in doing that type of work, it just seemed like, yeah, I'm talking about 
people stepping up, but you know, maybe it's time for me to step up as well. And so I did that sort of um, throughout my career, but really it was often that I was the only Native American in my newsroom or one of very few uh, people of color in my newsroom. And so it just spoke to the fact that things needed to change. And they, and they still do. There's some efforts that have been made, some progress has been made, but there's much more to do. What do you see as the main challenge you're trying to tackle right now? Well, it's it's a different ballgame because now I work for a, a group that's just focused on Indigenous journalism, uh, covering Indigenous communities. And so it's really, for me, a breath of fresh air. And in some ways, uh, when I got hired, I was saying that it felt like coming home. Finally, after all these years of working for commercial operations, uh, and then to work for a group that just focuses on uh, Indigenous communities was really um, something something different and something that I had, you know, sort of in a way been striving for in a different uh, venue, but but now to do to do that on a daily basis, it really brings a lot of meaning in, into what I do every day. And even though I'm not on the journalism side anymore, I'm on the business side, it still gives me inspiration to go out and do the fundraising and make sure that our operation is sustainable well into the future. Even though you've been an executive in your recent career, would you say you still identify as a journalist and that's kind of where your brain processes things through first? Yeah, correct. It is. And I never thought that I would be on the business side. It just uh, never occurred to me. But when I was at Madison Magazine and my boss, who was a great boss, left um, to pursue another opportunity, then I was interim publisher. And I just fell in love with just the business side. And I'm not sure where that came from, only that it has to do with a lot of spreadsheets and numbers, which when I was a journalist, uh, some of the things that I did was data um, mining and editing. And so just those numbers in themselves tell a story. So I, I think there was that connection there, but just trying to figure out the business model and the sustainability for the great work that we do as, as journalists, I think that was also something that spurred me on. I also imagine that it was perhaps a welcome challenge to operate in the model you're in now compared to the legacy media. Uh, you're in a nonprofit space. It's your own organization. Maybe there's been some challenges you've had to, especially over COVID, of course, right, to really think deeper about how do we make a sustainable model while also trying to stay true to the values and the work we're trying to put out. Yes, correct. So we have a great story to tell, and I think that's that's part of the success. I mean, I think while others have been, you know, uh, not as successful, we've been able to increase our um, revenues that we have um, gone after in the last couple of years and ended in the black uh, in 2021 and 2022, which is great. And so I, I do believe that a big part of it is just what we do is so needed in this country and that people get what we're about. And again, we just have an incredible story to tell. And and the things that we cover, no one else covers them. And then we cover them, stories that are written and produced by indigenous journalists. So it's rare to find that. And so I think um, people support that. 
You also say that you lead your teams by drawing on your Native American values. Can you share what some of those are? Yes. Uh, last year, we met as an executive team and some members of our board and talked about a lot of things, sort of like visioning for the future. And we also looked at some values. And there are a lot of indigenous values, but we narrowed them down to seven and had a really interesting discussion about what those were. And among those are uh, respect, humility, integrity, truth, courage. Um, and there are two more that escape me right now, but we, we had a great discussion about what things are really important to us because there are some universal values among indigenous people. But those really um, rose to the top and we try to incorporate those. You know, we're not perfect, but it's it really is good to have those foundations to fall back on or to, to use in how we treat people and, um, and our, our staff members. This week, you'll be receiving an honorary doctorate from Marquette, and you'll be attaching a feather to your graduation cap, wearing a Ho-Chunk dress under your gown, and a Ho-Chunk artist, uh, her name is Stephanie Swallow, is creating a blue and gold design for your ceremony stole. So can you speak a little bit on the importance of these details for the ceremony and what they mean to you as you wear them to accept this honor? Yes, thank you for pointing that out. It's really important, I think, to incorporate things that are important to me and my culture in receiving this honor. And I was so happy that uh, the organizers approached me about doing that for me. And um, it means a lot. And I draw on a lot of things in my daily life for strength and um, you know guidance and many of them being things that are central to my culture. So to have that sort of outward where people can see that is uh, it means a lot and it, it gives me um, inspiration and uh, just feeling good about the ceremony that's going to be taking place. Well, congratulations on your honorary doctorate. And Karen, thank you so much for joining me today to tell me more about yourself and your career. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. Karen Lincoln Michelle is the president and CEO of Indige Public Media. She's also president of Indian Country Today and a member of the Ho Chunk Nation. Michelle will be awarded an honorary doctorate from Marquette tomorrow and deliver a keynote address. The ceremony is free and you can find more information about it at wuwm.com. Coming up, Milwaukeean and bowler Erlene Fuller was known for designing eye-catching bowling shirts and winning some championships. We'll learn more about her life and legacy next on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Milwaukee has a long history with bowling. The city was once called America's 10-pin capital and was home to the United States Bowling Congress. So when designer and bowler Erlene Fuller started making shirts for local teams, she was following in the city's long history with the game. Her shirts became so popular, she was able to make a business out of it. She was also among a small number of black women who played the game and won local and national championships. To learn more about Fuller's legacy, Lake Effect's Joy Powers spoke with David Driscoll, the curator of economic history for the Wisconsin Historical Society, which has a number of Fuller shirts in its collection. 
Erlene Fuller is a really interesting person in Wisconsin history. She's not actually originally from here. How did she end up in Wisconsin? I think she was just part of the Great Migration. She was born in Jackson, Mississippi, born in 1931. And she came here when she was about 17 years old. I'm assuming it has to do with uh, economic opportunity and employment. I think Erlene is kind of characteristic of that whole era of African-Americans moving from the South to the North, um, looking for maybe a little more freedom and uh, a little more money. She worked in basically blue-collar jobs when she got here. She wound up sewing upholstery for American Motors. She worked there for maybe 10 years or so, and then kind of developed a clothing business, designing and making clothing on her own. And eventually that became successful enough that she quit her hourly job. Aside from her work, Fuller becomes interested in bowling, which really ends up kind of defining her career in later years. But at the time, the sport was still grappling with segregation to some extent. What did that mean for players like Fuller? There's kind of two answers to that. I think when she first encountered bowling, probably around 1960, the American Bowling Congress was no longer segregated. It had been sort of segregated according to their bylaws from about 1916 until 1950. Uh, The threat of lawsuits forced the American Bowling Congress to end its discriminatory language, kind of remove that from its charter. So that had already happened by the time Erlene got involved in bowling. But the thing about bowling is it certainly at that time, maybe less so today, but at that time it was very much a community activity, that it was either neighborhood folks bowling together at their local alley. In a lot of cases, there were work-related teams. And in fact, lots of the uh, Manufacturing companies in Milwaukee had leagues and the unions had leagues. So you wound up bowling with the people that you live nearby or that you worked with. And since most of the neighborhoods then and even today are fairly segregated and many occupations then and today are fairly segregated, it sort of worked out that bowling was not a particularly integrated activity, even though you know, the legal barriers had been dropped. So although it was by law no longer segregated, it was what we would call de facto segregation. I think that's fair to say. And one of the kind of interesting things about um, Erlene's career is that in the 70s and 80s, while she bowled on all black teams, she also bowled on a number of integrated teams as well was one of the few black bowlers, certainly few black female bowlers. It seems she became most well-known for the bowling shirts she designed. What did those look like? They're very diverse in their, their appearance. The ones that we wind up featuring tend to be the ones that kind of incorporate kente cloth or other kind of African motifs. But her career is much broader than that. In fact, we have a large collection of, of, you know, not just her bowling clothing designs, but also her bowling trophies and awards and things. So in fact, we have eight different bowling shirts that she made and two blouse and shirt combinations. And they kind of are all over 
you know, run the, the gamut. There's sort of a, a royal purple with gold stars on it. There's red, white, and black shirt that was used by the uh, Bolero Red Carpet Lanes All-Stars, of which she was one. There are others that were made for the Milwaukee Bowlers Guild, um, and that is an African-American bowling organization. I think she started making clothing for herself and her teams, and it was impressive enough that at the lanes, people would say, where did you get that uniform? Oh, you made it? Could you outfit our team? And so she started doing that and doing that for not just black bowlers, but for white bowlers as well. Um, and sort of word got around, you know, she had a, a good eye for style and, uh, you know, she did some maybe improbable assignments. She actually uh, designed and made the uniforms for the Swiss national bowling team in the seventies. She's a very interesting woman in the sense of sort of negotiating what makes a successful business in a predominantly white environment versus maintaining her own personal sense of style and identity. Why do you think it's important to continue telling her story and sharing these pieces of her life? I think it probably would be a a surprise to no one that museums and historical societies have overlooked African-American contributions. You know, I I think it's important for us to make a a conscious effort to correct that. But I think one of the the sort of challenges is to correct that in a, a kind of comprehensive way. I think it's easy for us to sort of collect and, and document extraordinary people. But the world is so much more complicated and large than sort of those pioneers. And, and that's one of the things that I really like about the early and fuller collection. This is a woman who managed to combine a talent that she had and a passion she had for bowling, turned it into a successful career. She was an outstanding bowler. She's an outstanding dressmaker and designer but she's not a headline maker. There's not a lot of narratives and discussion about you know, people who are just making their way and doing a good job of it. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Well, thanks for your interest. David Driscoll is the curator of economic history for the Wisconsin Historical Society, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers in 2021. You can find more stories like this at wuwm.com slash Black History Month. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore a study that looks at who is typically behind the wheel in pedestrian accidents. Plus, Bubbler Talk returns for its 17th season to answer your questions about the Milwaukee area. We'll tell you about the types of fish you often see jumping in the Milwaukee River. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.